theyeshiva.net. Listeners, you're tuned in to Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's weekly Matsoy Shabbos radio show from 10 to 11 p.m. The lines are open. You can call at 845-354-2444. You can email rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. I want to welcome everybody to our weekly show. So last, a lot going on in the Jewish world. There's a lot going on in the world. Israel celebrated its 67th birthday last Thursday following Yom HaZikaron, the Memorial Day for more than 23,000 soldiers um, who have died, who have been killed, Al-Kiddush Hashem, uh, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, the famous Rosh Hashiva of Gush Etzion, son-in-law of Rabbi Soloveitchik, Rabbi Yosheber Soloveitchik, passed away last week. He was a very prominent leader in uh, the world of modern orthodoxy and has created a generation of students, a genius of a man. There's the ongoing crisis with Iran, how the president and the United States government is dealing with Iran. And then we have, uh, last week we had this program, The Birds and the Bees, how to talk to your children about sensitive topics, and it generated a lot of discussion. Lots of emails, questions, remarks, objections came in, and I decided that it's worthwhile to perhaps continue on the theme, especially that we couldn't address Due to limits of time, we couldn't address many of the questions and the conversation. So the line is open. Everybody is free. You could call in with questions, remarks, statements, as good Jews, alternate speeches. Please call us at 845-354-2444. That's 845-354-2444. You can also email RabbiYYRadio at gmail.com. Let's go straight to the telephone lines. Menachem calls from Brooklyn. Go ahead. 
Do we have Menachem online? Okay, hopefully we'll get back to him. Is, do we have him? Okay. So let's go straight to the emails. A lot of emails came in and are coming in. You could you can email Rabbi YY Radio at gmail dot com or call eight four five three five four two four four four. So here there is an email, a few emails from people. Let's see what's going on. Okay. So one woman writes. I've been wanting to write for two weeks to say how much I enjoy and appreciate your program. Thank you so much. Your your advice and show about peace in the home is so helpful. I wouldn't mind if you repeat it every week. Okay, I'm glad. Thank you so, so much. Um, uh, I also appreciate your willingness to tackle a very important issue, no matter how sensitive, and appreciate hearing the Jewish view and... Uh, the Torah view. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, that's very nice. Let's go now to a question that somebody sent in. And here is the question. I'm listening to your show, and I'm wondering if women are included in your discussion about moral sensitivity when it comes to internet sites and so forth that you spoke about last week. Are women included in any size, shape, or form? What about women who are watching pornography? What about women who are engaging in these uh, components? Are there any prohibitions regarding these things? If there aren't any prohibitions for women, is it advisable for them to refrain from such activities anyway? Well, uh, I assume you understand the answer to this, and that is, of course, uh, the boundaries that life demands and asks of us are, of course, inclusive of both uh, men and women. And uh, I think pornog- pornography, as damaging as it is for the for the man, it's equally damaging for the woman. And in some instances, uh, it, could be, uh, it could be more severe. Uh, a woman, uh, you know, Judaism teaches uh, how, how deeply spiritual the w- feminine soul is, how deeply sensitive it is to truth, to morality, to wholesomeness, to live an integrated life. And when a woman does not believe in her essential dignity and her divine true power and depth and beauty and majesty, and she resorts to superficial and sometimes very counterproductive and destructive things in order to fill her void, it's a disaster. It's a disaster for her. It's a disaster for her loved ones, it's a disaster for her husband, for her children, and even if she's single, for the way she perceives herself and the way she defines her future. So there's no question that all of what we discussed applies to men, and it certainly applies to women in a way that is relevant to women. Let's go to the next question. Another email comes in from somebody who says as follows... Let me read this email. It's pretty intense. So apparently this is from a yeshiva student who, uh, dear Rabbi Jacobson, I'm struggling. I listened to your show, The Birds and the Bees, part one last week. I'm struggling very, very much with uh, the issue of what we call in uh, in uh, Judaism, Zera Levatola, meaning emitting uh, procreative seed, uh, sperm, procreative substances, and uh, it's extremely often, and it's very difficult for me to stop. I know the 
Torah's view on this, and I need advice. I feel horrible. I feel terrible. I feel ashamed. I'm glad that I can bring up this issue because there's nobody really I could speak to about this. What should I do? Well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing this. And I know that it's not comfortable for you to share this. And frankly, it's not comfortable for me to talk about it. Because really, you know, these issues, it's it's much more appropriate not to speak. It's, it's, it's what should I tell you? The very issues are not, um, are not really, we, we, we lose sensitivity when we speak about certain things. You know, some things... It's better not to speak about, not because they're not part of reality, because there's a certain sensitivity. When you're dealing with very deep things, very serious things, very emotional things, sometimes words violate them. But you know, the bottom line is this. We live today in a culture that everybody speaks about everything, and sometimes in very vulgar ways. And therefore, if we're not going to present to our youngsters the Jewish healthy view on these issues, it's not like... They're not going to be educated about it. They will be educated about it, but from sources that are clueless about what they need most, what they want most, and what is best for them. And that's why I, w- I felt, and a few people suggested it to me, but I felt that it was, it was a proper thing to address these issues, even though it's, it's, it's not that comfortable. So let me respond to your email, my dear friend. First of all, the first thing you have to know is you're not abnormal. You're not weird. You're not crazy. You're not a mishugana and you're not evil. You're a human being like all of us. You're overtaken by urges and instincts that are natural and seem very, very powerful and uncontrollable. And many of us often fall prey to them. But here's the news. Each of us is empowered to confront it. You and me and every person listening to this show and all of our loved ones are empowered to confront it. And it's a fight well worth it. Because the fact that the Torah, Judaism, cautions us to abstain from emission of procreative substances, besides in the proper context of a marriage and a relationship, is not just a uh, strange decree. It's because it's very unhealthy on many, many levels. The prohibition of Torah against it is not a decree to stifle fun, to repress pleasure. As I discussed last week, it's there to allow us to live a deeper and much more authentic life. And I want you to remember that. There is no such a thing that a law of Torah is here to uh, suppress people's uh, lives, to stifle their creativity. Um, God really hates when you have fun and he just wants you to be miserable and fakvetched and, and downtrodden and dejected. That's, that's not the case. It's a misguided view on all of Judaism. To the contrary, the Rabbi Shalom, the master of the universe, conceived the world in love. And he conceived every single person with tremendous affection and love and wants your success, wants your happiness. Why then are there so much, so many boundaries on sexuality? Why are there so many boundaries? Why not do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, wherever you want? So let me tell you a few things. First of all, emitting a seed serves 
as one of the greatest and one of the deepest releases for stress. And what happens then is it doesn't allow us to even figure out what we really need or want in our life because the moment we feel pain, emptiness, boredom, agony, uh, emptiness, we release the pain, we fill the void through this outlet and this covers up our true feelings. It doesn't allow us to feel the true cause of our inner voids. We never get to know who we really are. If you do not engage in this behavior, the stress will remain in your mind and you will ultimately get to know yourself and feel yourself. After a few days, after a few weeks, you will see. You will be compelled to figure out who you really are. You know why? Because you don't have this easy outlet in which you provide yourself with momentary gratification and it allows you really to abandon the search for the self and the search for the soul. You will have the opportunity to deal with yourself and then you will be able to start living a wholesome life. And I tell this to you with absolute and unwavering assurance. This is not fantasies. It's not delusional, religious, strange dreams. This is reality. When you engage in this type of behavior, it sweeps everything away under a powerful rug and it robs us from the ability to really live a deep and honest and fulfilled life life. And it's very, very sad when we don't associate Yiddishkeit with living a deep, honest, and fulfilled life. There was one, somebody once told me that they saw a film, and um, it's a very characteristic moment. A, a young, a young, cynical, uh, atheistic woman turns to her very, very religious uncle and she says, so uncle, if you had to choose between God and truth, what would you choose? And he looks at her and he says, God, of course. And it really, it, it makes a mockery of all of Yiddishkeit because if God is anything but truth, what's the worth of such a God? If Judaism is anything but honesty, what's the worth of that Judaism? So uh, so basically, by point number one to you is it becomes like a drug and it serves as a distraction and an endless distraction. And that's what happens to so many people. They're living in a world of distractions, especially if it's ongoing and consistent and it could become an addiction. Then you don't even know that you're living in a world of delusions. You're so wrapped up in going from one distraction to another distraction. And every moment, every time you fill a void, you just focus how you can get the next distraction done, you're completely, you're completely lost in the process. And you just fall down more and more in the sense that you don't recognize yourself anymore. And you're so in denial that you don't even realize that you're not recognizing yourself. So that's point number one. And what I want to explain to you about the negative consequences, I want to get to another point in a moment, but I'm going to take the call because Menachem came back. Menachem from Brooklyn, you're on line. Go ahead. Shavua Tov to you, Rabbi. How are you? Thank you. Shavua Tov, Menachem. Go ahead. Welcome. Hello. Can you hear me? We can hear you loud and clear. Thank you, Rabbi. Sure. Thank you for your show, wonderful show. Um, pleasure to hear you every week. Here's my Thank question. You. Thank you. Yes. Here's my question. If this is, we know that this is a problem all over, in every community, every family, um, and for some reason, the leaders of our community 
are almost ignoring the problem. They don't talk about it. There's no proactive action to educate our kids on this issue. Not only that, but we worry about our, our children. Adults, they have a mind, and they could decide for themselves what to do. And I'm not saying this is easy, but adults are adults. What about kids who don't know um, and are not always able to make the right decision? And we know that uh, access to filthy content uh, through the Internet is um, available around them, if not in the house. Why is it that the leadership abundant, and we know we heard um, a kindness last year or a uh, gathering uh, about uh, banning the internet. Um, are we sure that this is the right way to go? Are we banning something which is not possible or have the Allah called it which is uh, which means that the people, the crowd, the community cannot ban the internet. The internet is there. No matter how we look at it, it's there. Did you go to the yes. meeting? Did you go to that Asifa? No, I didn't go. I wasn't there. Okay, listen, Menachem. You bring up two very valid questions. I'll tell you what I think about both of them. As far as, 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 as many people in leadership or in education or rabbis and so on and so forth, of course I can't speak for anybody else but myself, but I think that there is a common uh, trend. And that is, let's face it, in the old world, these issues were not discussed about, were not discussed very often. We expected that our boys and our girls were educated in in. In, in beautiful, observant, modest, what we call in Yiddish, edle Yiddish Heiser, refined Jewish homes with fathers and mothers and grandparents and, and spiritual leaders and teachers and educators who were role models. Of course, we speak about the ancient times with nostalgia, which is also a delusional, a dream, but generally speaking, at least for many, the street was a more wholesome street. Uh, you lived within, uh, you know, you met the same people for 40, 50 years, and in the right time, your father or your teacher or your rabbi educated you about what you had to know. And in many ways, we still continue that model, which means in our conversations with our students, in our Musr Shmuzin, in our Shiurim, in our discussions, in our private conversations, Mashgichim, Rashi Shivas, Mashpiyim, Rabbonim, with students, parents with children, this is almost, almost never addressed unless, unless a yeshiva boy or a girl explicitly approaches a teacher or a shishiva or a mashkiach, then perhaps he or she will address it. And also, not always, sometimes they'll address it more, sometimes they address it less. So there's like an old model where it's better not to speak about it, it's modest issues, it's sensitive issues, and it's better not to articulate it, because speaking about it itself is considered not so tzniyazdik, not so modest. And I understand this notion very well, and you know what? Probably for a certain percentage of students and children, it's uh, it's highly appropriate because they figure things out by osmosis and they get they get the energy of Judaism and the perspective of Judaism and intimacy, you know, through the chicken soup of their mothers and their and their grandmothers. But we have to face the reality, and that's exactly why I'm addressing it at the radio shows. The reality is that there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of Talmidim and Talmidas students 
children, teenagers, boys and girls and all of our yeshivas that are struggling with this. And they do not have anybody to speak to. And therefore they come to a conclusion, and that is that Judaism really has nothing serious, intelligent, loving, empowering, logical, rational, healthy to tell them on the matter. Besides that everything fun is forbidden. And what this is creating in the private intimacy of their life, no one even begins to imagine. How do I know about it? Well, first of all, I'm a person myself (laughs) who has my own struggles. And second of all, I've had the privilege of of many youngsters coming coming, uh, to me and speaking to me either directly or indirectly by email or by telephone and so forth. And I've seen this over the years. So I think we cannot anymore bury our heads in sand. Of course, this doesn't mean that now we put up big signs everywhere and banners on all the websites with large advertisements about this. But it does mean that in a sensitive, in a sensitive, appropriate, healthy fashion, we address it in the right way to the right people, age appropriately, in a way that we can actually imbue them with the, pers- with the majestic perspective of Yiddishkeit that has sustained us as a people and as individuals for thousands of years, giving them a blueprint, a manual direction for an issue which is so vital to the human condition and so crucial to the human conditions, especially those who have failed in various areas who often give up on themselves and they feel hopeless. The second issue as far as... as, as uh, and I do think, I do think, I mean, educators have told me that they realize this. Any educator, there's another issue. Educators have to be in tune with their students. If you're not listening to your students, if you just come into the classroom and you preach, you pontificate, you give your lecture, you give your class, you give your shear, you're not in tune to their emotional and psychological needs, then you yourself could be living in the Nile. But are you an educator today? Parents and educators must, always, but certainly today, must be very in tune with what our children are going through, especially when it comes to intimate issues. You know, somebody once told me that in Torah, the commandment for education is always near the mitzvah of tefillin, like in Shema. Both portions of Shema, tefillin and education are together. And the reason is, and in Parshas Boy as well, and the reason is by tefillin there's a special halacha, no hesachadas. When you're wearing tefillin, you can't be thinking about other things. Your mind has to be in tune with the tefillin. And with education also, there's no hasachadaz. There's no such a thing. You look away, and you let your children grow up. <laughs> let them just grow up. They don't just grow up. If they would be in a little shtetl, fine. But they're exposed to almost everything, even in isolated communities. Even those communities that have banned internet. Now, as far as the asifa, let me tell you this. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a whole discussion. I'm just going to make one, one point. And the point is as follows. It's very obvious that even for us adults, excessive usage of the Internet, even if you're on clean sites, is counterproductive. Certainly for children, any type of sitting in front of a screen for hours, whether it's television, computer games, computers, Internet sites, is counterproductive. Especially, it may be sites that are very inappropriate and literally may take them down to the abyss. And therefore, every parent and every educator has to create appropriate boundaries in their home in the best situation. In the best, You need boundaries with computers, you need boundaries with internet sites and so forth. However, 
we cannot define the internet as the quintessential enemy for Judaism and the en- enemy of, of Yiddishkeit and the enemy of God. On the contrary, the internet, just like radio, just like any other natural force in the universe, is a gift that the Rebbeinu Shaloylam has given civilization and humanity through which we can spread Torah, Yiddishkeit, goodness and kindness. I have the privilege of being part of the yeshiva.net for quite a few years now. Thousands and thousands of Jews learn Torah on a constant basis as a result of the internet. So the internet is a power. And it's an incredibly powerful tool to flood the world with godliness, with goodness, with kindness, with Torah. Like any powerful force in the world, it can be used productively. It can be used destructively. The Mishnah says in Masech the Sanhedrin, they ask Rabbi Akiva, if people worship the sun, so why does God allow the sun to come out every morning? So Rabbi Akiva says, You want Hashem to destroy the world because of fools? The sun is an incredible blessing. Have some people used it as an idol? Of course. Can the internet be used for very destructive purposes? Of course. Can it be used for extraordinarily ad- extraordinary advancement of goodness and holiness and spirituality and Torah and Yiddishkeit? Of course. What we want to give our children is a sense of empowerment. What do I mean? Let's say I can manage to get all internet out of my house and out of my community. Let's say theoretically I could. Let me ask you a question. When my boy is 15... Or my girl is 16. Are they not going to encounter the internet somewhere? And when they do encounter the internet, if they have been taught their whole life that the internet is the embodiment of Satan and it's the incarnation of the devil himself, and suddenly when they're 16 or 19 or 24, they discover this devil called the internet. Wow! What a world! Crazy Meshuggah It's so exciting! And suddenly the devil becomes the most exciting thing to them. Does that, is that education? I want to teach my children that ain oid malvadai, that every power that God created in this world, every scientific development, every technological innovation and revolution, its sole true purpose is to reveal the oneness of creation, to reveal what we say, what we call, what we define in Torah as Ein Oid Mulvada. I want my child to be able to come to the internet with a sense of offensive pride, not defensive inferiority complexes. Teach them that when somebody uses the internet for a purpose that is contrary to one's soul, to one spiritual mission, to one's essence, they're not only corrupting themselves, you know what they're corrupting? They're corrupting the internet. The internet is a koya heleki. It's a divine power. Who gave us the power of cyberspace? What type? It's a divine power. It's like the gift of electricity. It's like the gift of sunlight. These are divine gifts. Don't pervert the divine gift of the internet. Does that mean that an eight-year-old should be allowed to be on the internet for six hours a day? No, and a 14-year-old also not. And you know what? A 30-year-old also not. Everybody needs boundaries, but these boundaries are a means for an ends. We shouldn't educate them that the internet is the essence of evil. No. We each have a Yetzirah. We have to control it. You need boundaries with the internet. But essentially, what is the internet? The internet is a divine gift that was given to us to spread godliness in the whole world. 
to be able to usher in the time. Yeshaya Navi says in chapter 11, we say it on Achrin Shal Pesach, The world will be filled with knowledge like uh, uh, the water covers the sea. We'll be back right after the song. So, that was a beautiful song. Thank you, Lee. So you're all, you're tuned in to Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's radio show. We're on every Mitzvah Shabbos on the Nachum Siegel Network. Our lines are open. Feel free to call in 845-354-2444, 845-354-2444. We're discussing... The birds and the bees talking to your children and students about the sensitive issues. This is part two. You can email your questions also to RabbiYYRadio at gmail.com. RabbiYYRadio at gmail.com. If you want to listen to last week's show or previous shows or other classes of mine, you can tune in to www.theyeshiva.net. 
That's theyeshiva.net. And tomorrow morning, Sunday morning, I have a weekly live class broadcast on theyeshiva.net. 9.30 a.m. We'll be discussing the fight between Chazal and the Sadducees and the Tzedukim. So that's on theyeshiva.net. But you're tuned into our radio show here, The Birds and the Bees, Part 2. And we're going to go straight to the emails. You can email rabbiyyyradio at gmail.com. RabbiYYRadio at gmail.com or call in live 845-354-2444. I just want to tell all those who are sending emails, I will not share your last name without your explicit permission. I know these are sensitive questions. I will only announce the first name and not the last name unless you give explicit permission for that. So you need fear not about that. So we have quite a few emails. Let's get here to the email of this teenager writing about his struggles with masturbation, struggles with the issue of emitting procreative seed. And I was explaining to him one of the reasons the Torah cautions us against it so that you don't re- you actually learn who you really are. And I want to tell you, my dear, my dear Bacharel, my dear friend, there's another point, and that is... The most divine part in a person is his or her ability to create life. That's the seed of life. And that part of you, you don't squander. It's the deepest, holiest, and most sublime part of the human being. And that's why the Torah is so sensitive and creates so many boundaries about that because it recognizes the power of, the infinite power that exists in the seed of life to create life. It's that point where you become godlike, where you assume divine qualities. And that's why it's so pleasurable. Because the source of all pleasure is God. And when you become divine like, godlike, there is a tremendous amount of pleasure. But that's why you want to be so sensitive to it, because it contains incredible power. You don't just squander it. So if I were you, I would make a resolution to stop this immediately. And next time you're lonely or you feel an instinct that might bring you to it, go ahead and immediately begin doing something productive. Take a jog, go to the gym, call a friend, do push-ups, go out, learn a blad gemara, play basketball, go swimming, whatever. Get out of the danger zone. You see, in the beginning, right after your decision, it's going to be the hardest. The Yitzhahara will try to create every possibility in the world to make you fall. But don't let him win. You must ruthlessly dismiss it. No compassions, no ifs, no maybes, no sometimes. It's just a no, a no, and a no. The Helekeshin of Erov, the Divrei Yecheskel writes, Why is it that on the word Vayimain in Vayeshev there's a Shalshelis, there's a unique musical note in Chumash called Shalshelis. It's only four times in the whole Chumash. You know how it goes? And one of the times it's there is on the word Vayimain. When Poitifar's wife tries constantly, incessantly, asks Yosef to lay with her, he refuses as a Shalshelas. So the Shinavirov writes, he says, because Yosef told her, Nain, 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 no, 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 and no again. 
Now, let me tell you something about life. It's very difficult to fight this head on. Once you're already experiencing temptation, you're likely to lose. It's too powerful and tempting an urge. What is needed is not to allow yourself to enter into situations which you know will take you down that path. Say you know, for example, that the craving comes when you lie in bed in the morning or in the evening or in the afternoon or on Shabbos or on Friday or Mitzvah Shabbos, whatever it is. You know how your body works, so you need to make sure don't get into that situation. Don't try to fight it after it enters your brain and you begin to get aroused. It's too difficult to win. Stay away from the entire experience as much as possible. Now, usually it happens when you're bored. You cannot allow yourself to be bored. If you're feeling the slightest urge, you must immediately run away. Go into another environment. Call somebody. Substitute it with something else. Call a friend. Do something. Do 30 push-ups. Do 200 push-ups. Learn something. It's hard, but if you create a schedule in which you're busy and you stay out of these situations that bring you trouble, you will be able to change your life around. And the fact that you have made mistakes in the past, don't sit and beat yourself up eternally about it. You're human. There's a beautiful mitzvah called tshuva, and it means when you have remorse for the past and you make a positive revolution for the future, it's over. It's gone. And I wish you a lot of luck. And remember the words of the Rambam in Hilchisi Surah B, I think chapter 22, and he says, most immoral and promiscuous behavior comes to people who are bored. Their hearts and their minds are vacant from wisdom, from depth. So, next email from David. My first time listening to your radio show tonight. I have to tell you that I appreciate actually somebody finally talking about the issue of masturbation. Listening from Texas. Well, David, thank you very much for your words. And I hope that the words that come from my heart will enter into the heart. Let's go to another email. There's a lot of questions here. Gavaldik, you could call in live 845-354-2444 or email rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. We have a question from Elaine. I am a Baalas Truva woman, which means I returned to Judaism later in life. My nuclear and extended family is not religious. The teenagers and young adults are all involved in intimate behavior, not according to the Torah. They're having children outside of marriage. They're involved in teenage sexuality. Do I say something to them? Thank you very much. Hi, Elaine. Wow, that's a very good question. So, listen, this comes back to a general question, and that is, do you say something to them? I mean, I don't know the nature of your relationship with them. To get up and give speeches to them, to lecture them, to pontificate to them, and to tell them how horrible and inappropriate their behavior is, I think, frankly, will be futile. It will be ineffective. And equally damaging, it will damage your relationship with them. And I think it's very valuable that a balas tshuva or a bal tshuva, somebody who returns to religion, should not abandon their family. I think it's a, it's a mistake that some of us make in our zest and eagerness to join the observant community. We don't look back. It's a mistake. I once said an insight to a group of bali tshuva, and I think there's, there's truth to it. Elaine, you'll, tell, you'll email me if you agree. 
You know, we welcome Shabbos on Friday night. Beautiful poem composed by Reb Shloimel Kabitz from Tzvas in the 15th century. The brother-in-law of Reb Moshe Kordavir, Reb Shloimel Kabitz Gevald, he was killed by an Arab in Tzvas, Hashem Yenkem Dome. But his poem of L'chadoidi became one of the priceless gems of Jewish liturgy and ecstasy in every shul and home on Friday night. And then when we're finished it all, we turn around. We turn around. If you're facing the east of the shul towards Jerusalem, you turn around to the back. Why? We got bored of the view. And one of the answers, I think, at least one of the homiletical interpretations is, you know, sometimes in life, you discover Shabbos. You discover the serenity, the tranquility, the transcendence of Shabbos, and you want to run away from the six days of the week. You want to leave go of the materialism, of the physicality, of the bruteness. You discover the oasis we call Shabbos. But Judaism says, no, 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 no. Don't just run into Shabbos. It's time to turn around and see where you came from. Because you want to bring your entire past with you into Shabbos. You don't want to run away from your past. You want to elevate your past. You want to sublimate your background. The fact that God put you in that family is not a mistake. A Balchuva should never think, oh, what a horrible mistake that I had to grow up this way and finally I found the light. No, that's part of your light. That's part of your mission. Hashem wanted you in that family. All of the experiences you had in that family will contribute to your growth, to your future, to your destiny, to the way you educate your children. Don't cut off ties with your family. Don't look at your past as the horrible, evil past that you have to run away from. Before you go into Shabbos, you have to turn around and take it all with you. So that's why, Elaine, I would encourage you not to do things that will just sever the connection. This doesn't mean you should compromise on your your integrity. This doesn't mean you should forfeit your identity. This doesn't mean you should violate Torah laws. It does mean that you want to have an ongoing loving relationship with the members of your nuclear and your extended family. Saying that, if there is a cordial, mature, uh, non-threatening way to converse with them about these issues and convey it to them in a way that they won't feel you're preaching to them, you feel that you discovered the light and you are now holier than everybody else, you have now this holier-than-thou attitude. She's now in a cult. She was brainwashed. She was indoctrinated. She's now going to tell us how the liberal, modern world is so horrible. And the ultra-Orthodox world, that's the beautiful world. So what are you going to gain? We'll just generate more mistrust and less understanding. And let's face it, they... they, they most of them mean well. They're looking for happiness. They're looking for freedom. They're looking for liberty. This is their outlet. Has anyone taught them differently? Has anyone taught teenage girls how dignified and sacred their bodies are? How they should never do anything just to get attention from teenage boys? Has anybody taught this to them? Have their fathers given their daughters an unconditional and unwavering sense of confidence that they don't have to sacrifice their beauty and their dignity just to impress people who don't even really care about them? Many of them never received that. So if you could reach out and reach in in that way, 
I congratulate you, but I think you should be sensitive about the issues that uh, we have uh, discussed earlier. An email question comes in. Have you had experience with speaking about this to secular, secular Jews? I'll tell you an interesting story I had. I was once lecturing to a group of students at Duke University. My friend, the Chabad ambassador at Duke, Rabbi Blooming, Rabbi Zalman Blooming, and his Rebetzin Yehudis invited me to speak to the students at Duke. And it was a very interesting conversation. It was about relationships. And these are good kids, educated students. The hall was packed. Young men and young women, Ivy League University, highly intelligent, doing well in their studies, a lot of them ambitious. And at some point in the conversation, one of the students raised his hand and asks a very blunt question. He wanted to know if I, me, Rabbi Jacobson, engaged in premarital intimacy. So <laughs> I looked at him and I said, no. And he gets up and says, aha, so you live in another planet. How do, we expect, how do you expect that we should listen to your advice when you don't even share our planet? This was his remark, more or less. It happened uh, quite a few years ago, so I'm not quoting him verbatim, but this was the nature of the remark. This was a serious challenge. You know, I lecture around the world. People ask questions. Sometimes people get upset. Sometimes people ask challenging questions. But this was a tough one because he wasn't just challenging my information. He was dismissing me completely. He was saying, you know, this guy lives on another planet. He gets married to a woman without any experimenting. Who does that? Who does that? You buy a computer, you buy a car, you never saw how it works. Who does this today? He's living in a different world. So even if he's giving intelligent advice, it's irrelevant. A UFO will land here and start telling you how to run your home or run your business. He may be a genius or not, but he's just not in this world. He's not on this planet. It was a formidable challenge. I'll tell you how I responded And I think some of them took to it. Some of them internalized it. And some of them, I hope at least, it made them think. I turned to the student and I said, you know, you have a good point. You have a very good point. But I want to ask you a question. Before the 1960s, this was the custom of many homes. Not just Jews, non-Jews too. Before marriage, you didn't engage in sexuality. In fact, it was one of the motivations of marriage. Your father knew where you went at night. There was no such a thing a 16-year-old girl goes somewhere. Everything was controlled. You want to enjoy intimacy? Get married. This was not only true about the Jewish world, the Orthodox world. It was true generally about American society and other societies. The 1960s saw what we call today a sexual revolution in which most boundaries and inhibitions, I didn't want to say all, but at least most boundaries and inhibitions in this field, in this realm, have been removed. So now I told the student, people can live with somebody for a year, two years, three years, six years, ten years. 
check out the situation, examine the merchandise, scrutinize all the details, and then see if you're compatible or not compatible. And that seems like such a blessing, such a progressive notion. You try it out, you see who you're dealing with, and then you get married. Perfect. When you go in blindly, you don't know what's happening. You can make so so many problems. I said, I understand you. Now I have a question. If that's the case, is it not true? Doesn't it make sense that from the 1960s on, after the sexual revolution, we should have observed an increase in the quality and longevity of marriages? By 50%, by 40%, by 30%, we should have seen that marriages after the 1960s last longer, they're more successful. After all, it's not like the grandparents who went into it blindly not knowing the other person. These are educated folks. They came into it with full information after experimenting for months or years. Okay, not 30% increase in the quality of marriage. 20%, 10%. You know what? 5%. I give you 5%. I would like to see from the 1960s a 5% increase in the length, in the enduring power of marriages and relationships. You know what I told him? I would even maybe agree with you if we would not see any increase, and we would attribute it to other factors. Women are more independent. They have their own jobs. They, they, don't, they don't need to stay married in order to support themselves. So that's why with the advantages also came the issues and the factors that caused marriages to deteriorate. But I asked him, I said, but we have an absolutely opposite statistic. Since the 1960s, marriage have gone downhill to a point that in many cities and countries, 50% of first marriages stand a chance of breaking up and ending in divorce. And more than 60% of second marriages. That's astonishing. What happened to this great sexual revolution that exposed people to the realities of intimacy in such a vivid and realistic way they can go into marriage so much more? I don't understand. How is it that precisely after the 1960s, marriage has suffered such a horrible blow? Where you put two couples and after nine months they're fighting, after two years many are divorced, five years, ten years. There's millions of children added each year to the list of broken families. How did that happen? I looked at the student and I said, maybe, maybe, your great, great, great grandparents, your grandmothers and grandfathers who have lived as Jews over the last 4,000 years were not as stupid, were not as cultish, were not as meshuggah, were not as irrational, and were not cavemen like you think they were. Maybe there was a wisdom there that is very profound. And I'll share with you what that wisdom consists of. I said, let's face it. Marriage is not easy. Relationships are challenging for two people with different natures to live together and build a home together and a family together. It's a daily challenge. But you know what happens? A boy and girl, a young man and young woman meet 
and they get drunk. They get intoxicated. You know why they get intoxicated? Because sexuality is exciting. And it causes her and him to overlook many details. And then they get married. And after a few years, they have already been so many times together, it gets a little boring. And now suddenly, the flaws in each other's personality come to the fore. And they say, hey, we're not compatible with each other. We're so different. The value of the Jewish tradition, I told the students at Duke is, it tells you date and date and don't allow yourself to get inebriated, intoxicated and drunk over sexuality because your borders are maintained. And this is the time where you study your girlfriend's personality, your boyfriend's character. Don't get drunk by getting involved with the body because men can lose their minds in the process and they come home and they tell their mother, I met this girl, I'm crazy over her. And the mother says, are you sure? What about this issue, that issue? Nah, it's nothing. And then after four years, you say, was your mother right? But what if in the dating process, you create a distance and hence you can focus in completely on the other person's character traits, their values, their belief system, their lifestyle, their emotions, their disposition, the way they treat people, their philosophical ideals and values. This will not change. Bodies change and you may get bored of somebody, but the personality of your boy and your girl will not change after 20 years. You know what happens then? Then you enter into a relationship with sobriety, with wholesomeness. And that's why it's actually a guarantee for much less divorce. So I looked at the students, I said, before you mock the tradition of your people, and before you dismiss me as a caveman for following it, I want you to think twice whether there is not profound logic in the Torah's boundaries on sexuality. One of the students stood up and said, So Rabbi, what do you suggest practically we all do today? It was a moment of great inspiration for me. Because here was a student at Duke who said, Wow, now teach me what to do. And what was I supposed to tell these students? <laughs> to go cold turkey? What should they do? They should all, What should they do? And I, I guided them. I guided them. I told them, you know, they should be sensitive to this. They should create boundaries in their life. They should create borders in their life. Especially girls. Especially young women because their souls are very deep and they allow it often to be violated. So this is one very interesting encounter that I had with lovely, lovely Jewish students on campus. And I think it was, it, 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 it was, it was a, meaningful, a meaningful conversation and it relates to all of us in one way or another. I think it's an example for us to understand that the halacha is not here to crush life. It's not here to stifle and snuff out the joy of people. To the contrary. Let's go back to the emails. You can email rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. Our time is short, so let's see how many more questions we can take. There's still a lot to discuss. I do want to encourage you to come back here next week. Share it with your friends. We're on every Saturday night from 10 to 11 p.m. on the Nachum Siegel Network. You can pick it up on the, yeshi- the yeshiva.net, where you can also get the older shows. 
and you can watch there my classes, including Sunday morning live, 9.30 a.m. Okay, here is another question. Yeah, painful story. Is it, how do we, there are many, Rabbi Jacobson, there are many women who say they don't want to use the mikveh anymore as a result of what the rabbi, Rabbi Frondel, did in Washington, D.C. in the mikveh. What do you suggest I tell these women? Yeah, it's a painful story. But frankly, I would say the truth. And the truth consists of two facts. And that is, I wish this wasn't the case, but sadly it is the case. Never confuse Jews with Judaism. I wish we would be I wish we would be able to confuse every Jew with Judaism and every rabbi with Torah. Sometimes you could, but you can't always. We all have struggles and challenges. We have Yetzirahs and sometimes we fall prey. What does that have to do with the value of mikvah? And there comes a point in life where you build a relationship with God not based on any human beings, but based on your own intimate relationship with God. So I could watch a rabbi who has maybe taught me Torah, and he may fail, but my relationship with God does not come through an intermediary. A rabbi is there to inspire you and teach you not to replace your own responsibility and duty to your God. But I think there's a more important point, and that is the very story of the rabbi in Washington, D.C. demonstrates the value of mikvah. What's mikvah all about? Mikvah represents the boundaries that even a couple, a husband and a wife, need in their own relationship. Two weeks, fire. Two weeks, water. Two weeks, closeness and intimacy. And two weeks, respect. Space. Learning about the other rather than only enjoying the other. And then at the end of those two weeks, there is the concept of mikvah. Mikvah represents the boundaries needed in every single relationship so that a husband and wife learn not only to love and enjoy each other, but to respect each other. Doesn't this very story of the rabbi and the mikvah demonstrate how desperately we all need these boundaries? How much we all need to work on ourselves. That's what mikvah is all about. If anything, his story should only encourage the observance of the laws of family purity. I'm going to conclude with a story. And the story is, there was once an old Rebbe, an old rabbi, Rebbe in Poland. He was an old man. He was a widower. And they had a young yeshiva student, a bocher, helping him in the house. And there was an old Polish lady who would clean the house and one day the bacher tells him i'm going i'm going out for a few minutes it was a winter night and the boy leaves and he comes back a half an hour later and he sees this rebbe standing outside shivering shivering he says why are you outside Rebbe says, I can't be alone with the woman cleaning. It's inappropriate. He says, Rebbe, you're 90, you're an old man, and she's 70, and she's not most beautiful. He says, with my Yetzirah in five minutes, I become young, she becomes beautiful. Real people know that life is about continuous control.
This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.